Well, good morning, Covenant. It is good to be together. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning as we continue on in our series through 2 Corinthians. So, if you'd go ahead and turn with me in your order of worship or in your Bibles, we're going to be starting in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 23. The Apostle Paul says this, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we worked with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery story. And you know, the last couple of years, it seems like the genre of whodunit has had some solid additions. We've had different movies, TV shows, podcasts, And one of the things that seems to happen in any good mystery is a classic misdirection. As the detectives follow the clues, all the evidence seems to point to a single suspect, maybe even the person most obvious. Perhaps they link the murder weapon to the person, or the person doesn't have a good alibi, or maybe they just have a very clear motive. Everyone just knows they did it. It's an open and shut case. Or so it seems. The problem is that this person was framed by the real perpetrator. They were designed to be the suspect, and everyone else was set up to believe the false accusations against them. In the midst of their assumed guilt, the suspect tries to defend themselves from these expertly crafted explanations of their actions. But when it comes to the trust of the community, they face an uphill battle trying to regain it. This kind of tension between accusation and reality is a lot like the tension at play between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church. As we've been studying the second Corinthians, we've seen over the last couple of weeks the way that Paul is fending off these false accusations that have been spread through the church. 
His opponents there have been circulating lies about him, saying that he's not a true apostle, saying that he is not worthy of leadership and authority. And they've been convincing. Paul then has gone to great lengths to defend himself. He wrote a separate letter called a painful letter. And in it, he rebukes these people and tries to convince the people to discipline him in the church. And his efforts were mostly successful because a majority of the Corinthian Christians had listened to Paul and disciplined the people who opposed him. They cast them out of their community. But problems and conflict in Corinth persisted. And just like the murder mysteries, there's a sense in which Paul and the Corinthians have been set up. They've been framed by the real perpetrator. There is one who stands to gain from their ongoing conflict, and Paul knows this. And so we see Paul point to this reality that we as modern Western people are quick to deny or neglect. At the very end of our passage, he speaks about the designs or the schemes of Satan. And he urges the church not to be outwitted or exploited or to fall into the traps that he has laid out against humanity. These traps he intends for destruction. Traps that exacerbate the alienation we feel because of sin. Alienation between God and ourselves and from other people. And I'm not suggesting that there's a demon on every doorstep, but Paul in the wider New Testament bears witness to this unseen realm in which forces of evil work to sabotage humans to keep them from experiencing the goodness of God's redemption. And so, in the midst of their messy situation, Paul recognizes Satan at work and he must confront two major problems set up by the forces of darkness. Problems with leaders and problems with community. You see, after all the controversy, the Corinthians were struggling to rebuild their trust in Paul as a leader. The opponents had made one argument against Paul that was particularly hard for him to shake, his change of travel plans. He had told the Corinthians that he intended to visit them again, but after the first painful visit, he discerned that it would be better not to. Now to us, this seems like a minimal issue, but for some, it was a kind of smoking gun that validated the accusations against Paul. The reasoning went something like this. If Paul is a leader to be trusted, then why did he change his travel plans? Why didn't he come and visit us like he said he would? Surely a true apostle wouldn't be so unreliable, making promises that he didn't actually intend to keep. And then there was, of course, that scathing letter he sent. So suffice it to say, the Corinthians had some problems with leaders. But they also had problems in their community. They were divided and conflicted, prone to mistrust and misunderstanding. Now, you and I might not live in the same time or place. We might not be facing the exact same challenges, but we do live in a time marked by problems with community and with leaders. All around us we see division, conflict, and controversy. And you know, one scholar put it this way, he said, Healthy relationships run on the twin tracks of trust and understanding. 
But when I look around at the world, it seems like we are rapidly losing the ability to trust and to understand the people around us. We live in a time when leaders are increasingly looked at with suspicion. And lots of this is for good reason. We've seen abuses of authority in practically every sphere of life, both inside and outside the church. We've watched with horror as leaders have been exposed for living double lives or creating toxic cultures to protect their own power. So as much as the details are different between our situation and the situation with Paul and the Corinthians, like them, we need the wisdom of God to help us mature in Christ when it comes to living under leadership. But our problems aren't simply with those above us in leadership. They're also with those next to us in our communities. We've had so many things to disagree about and divide over for the last couple of years. We often struggle to rebuild relationships after conflicts occur or after a person sins against us or our community. What could be said to mend the relationships, to rebuild trust and understanding? How can we move forward in relationships when it feels like they've been gutted? Well, it seems to me that Paul's words here to the Corinthians offer us a great deal of wisdom about living under leadership and living in community, especially those that have undergone conflict. There are ways that each of us can move forward into maturity in Christ and away from the destructive designs of the devil. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to find that in order for the church to resist the devil's schemes, our leadership must be marked by love and our communities marked by forgiveness. So let's take a look first at how Paul addresses the problems with leaders. Like many of us, the Corinthians feel suspicious of Paul, of their leaders. They aren't sure if he is godly or trustworthy. And that same question is one that we ought to ask ourselves. How do we know that a leader is godly, able to be trusted? Well, if you look the opening verse, Paul calls God himself as a witness to defend his character against the attacks from his accuser. And he reveals that one of the primary reasons that he didn't come to Corinth again, like he said, was to spare them. He discerned that another visit would do more harm than good. And Paul explains his motivations, and here is where I think we can gain insight into the motivations of a godly leader. Paul says, we don't lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And Paul sees with spirit-enabled vision that one of the devil's great schemes for leaders comes through the allure of power. The allure of power takes people and it leads them to dominate the very people that they are given to lead. Instead, in Paul, we see that a godly leader is motivated not by power, but by the joy of those they lead. And so we see Paul chose not to visit them again, not because of some character flaw, not because he wanted to dominate the people there, but, but because he discerned that him visiting again would threaten their experience of joy in Christ. But not only their joy, his joy as well. 
he, he recognizes that there's a mutuality, a partnership in joy, so that both Paul and the church have a stake in each other's joy as a result of their being united together in Christ. So the godly leader then must prioritize joy, not power. What about those times when a leader must exercise authority? What about when something occurs and they must correct or instruct or rebuke the people under their care? How can we recognize when a leader is faithfully instructing us or lording over us, to use Paul's words? Well, if you look at verse 4, Paul says this, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The process of writing his painful letter of rebuke was agonizing for Paul. He got no pleasure from the situation. In fact, it was the opposite. He was anguished and afflicted and he wept over their sin. Yet out of his love for them and responsibility as their leader, he corrected them for their health, for their joy in the faith. Paul shows us a kind of love that goes beyond mere affection and instead prizes the welfare and the faith and the flourishing of the people above any other factor. It's what any good parent knows, right? The need for disciplining a rebellious child isn't an opportunity to exert power over them or to get out your frustration. No, it's an opportunity to exercise love by leading them towards maturity. And this is why we all need leaders and authorities in our lives. Because we all have weaknesses. We all have places of immaturity. None of us have arrived yet. All of us are prone to wander. So we need to submit ourselves to godly leadership. But in doing that, how can we be confident in the leaders that we submit to? Well, what we see here is that the holy motivation of love must be the defining quality of a godly leader. Love is what makes a leader worth following. So Paul is saying that if we want to resist the devil's schemes, our leadership must be marked by love. But what about our community? Well, as we look at the next section of verses, Paul turns his attention to the problems at play within the church community. In this gentle way, he brings up the people who spoke out against him. Look at verse 5. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. And in this, he's powerfully reframing the wrong that's been done to show that there's actually corporate effects of sin. And this is a good reminder for us as well. None of us sins in a vacuum. None of us is able to escape the effects that our sin has on our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see this all over. You see this in life. You see this in Scripture. You can think about our previous series through the life of David and think about when David sinned with Bathsheba. The effects of his sin spread throughout his family throughout the kingdom, and went on for generations. 
But Paul brings this point up as a way of getting to the heart of his guidance to the Corinthians. You see, they had listened to the words from his letter, and they had disciplined the person speaking out against Paul. They had cast him out because of his rebellion. And this was what needed to be done in order to protect the church from his harmful message. But it seems that as time had passed, their discipline had led this man to repent from his sin. So now, in verse 6, Paul begins to call the church community to respond to his repentance with forgiveness and reconciliation. Read with me in in verse 6. He says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Here Paul is following up his instructions of discipline with a call to forgive and to reintegrate this man back into the community. But if you think about Paul's overall strategy, it's a bit opposite from what you might expect. First, he makes sure that they know that this guy actually caused them a great deal of pain. And then he tells them to forgive him, to comfort him, to save him from being overwhelmed by despair. I have to tell you, if I was trying to convince you to forgive someone who had wronged you, my strategy would be the opposite. First, I would try to downplay the harm and then try to make the offense seem less serious or it affected you less. And then I would encourage you to forgive him. And maybe you would be tempted towards this strategy too. I think that we do this because we can be too quick to take our cues about forgiveness from the world around us. I think that for many in our world, authentic forgiveness is hypothetically beautiful, but practically impossible. It's a nice idea, but it could never actually work. Relationships exist until conflict or betrayal or sin occurs. And well, that's the end of that. It was nice while it lasted. And since we don't believe forgiveness is real, we avoid bringing up conflicts. We deny ways that we have sinned or been sinned against in an effort to preserve false peace. But this is not how Jesus forgives, nor is it how he's calling us to forgive. Jesus doesn't downplay the severity of our sin. He shows us in his death on the cross the depths of our darkness. The weight of our guilt can only be measured when we consider the punishment that Jesus has endured. Yet in his resurrection, in his victory over sin, death, and Satan, God welcomes us into fellowship with himself and his church. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes us alienated sinners and brings us into the communion of saints when we repent and believe. So, in the flesh and blood situation in Corinth, we see Paul is calling the church to reenact the gospel by forgiving and restoring the sinner. And as he notes, this is part of our obedience to Christ. When faced with opportunities to forgive the people in our lives, there's a way in which our faithfulness in forgiveness draws us deeper into the presence of Christ. 
This is what Paul says in verse 10. We will experience more of the fullness of life in him when we follow in his footsteps and forgive. And this is also how we resist the designs of Satan. One of his most effective ways of keeping people from experiencing God's redemption is by working against forgiveness and reconciliation, especially in the church. Paul sees this and calls us not to be outwitted by the scheme. So the way forward is to follow the path of Jesus by being a people marked by forgiveness. When we think about this passage, about this vision that Paul is calling us to embody, I wonder what this could mean for us. What could it look like in our lives, our relationships, in our church, to be a people who, when we're faced with sin or hurt or offense, we acknowledge the sin, we call the guilty to repentance, but then we respond by extending the same grace that we've received and experienced in Jesus. This kind of forgiveness is something that our world desperately longs for, but just can't seem to execute. Because this forgiveness is enabled by the power of God. Left on our own, we don't have the strength or the will to resist the schemes of the devil. But but as people who have been forgiven much, who have been indwelt by the Spirit of God and encountered the glory and beauty of restored fellowship to God, who are we to withhold the same grace that He has not withheld from us? So if we are going to resist the devil's schemes, then we also must turn and forgive. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace that you have shown us in your son by forgiving us our sins through his life, death, and resurrection. I pray that we would be a people who embodies that forgiveness in the world around us, that the world might look and see the glory of the gospel in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.